Hello and welcome to Zero Out of Day. I am your humble host, Dr. Lorenzo Neal, hailing from Cajun Land, USA, here to present you with seeds of wisdom, insight, empowerment, and liberation, promoting a knowledge that is engaging and transforming, and empowering you, our listeners, to knowing and impacting the world around you. And as always, you're welcome to join us on this illuminating journey. Follow us on all social media or on Facebook. We are the Zero Network on Facebook. Go there, like that page, listen to archive shows, leave comments, let us know how we how that show's been doing, what you think about the show, all that stuff. You can do that on that Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at Zira Radio on Twitter. That's the show handle. At Lorenzo T. Neal. That's my personal handle. Also on Instagram, Dr. Lorenzo Neal. At Facebook, Dr. Lorenzo Neal. Also, follow us, like us, share us. We also have a YouTube channel <laughs> that we've just been trying to get up. And um, it's still kind of winky, but go there. Uh, Lorenzo Neal. I think is it Dr. Lorenzo Neal? I can't remember. But anyway, follow us on all the social media. We appreciate you so much. And if you haven't done so, I want you to become a supporter of this show. You can do so by being a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Go to the patreon.com slash Lorenzo T. Neal and sign up for one of those tiers to support this show. This is listener supported, and we're just so grateful that you thought it not robbery to do so. All right. This is the last week of February, uh, last few days of February last few days of what has been recognized as Black Heritage, Black History Month. And uh, so I, I thought I'd go into the archives since we've been talking a lot about um, the black church, black deconstruction of Christianity and all of that. Uh, several years ago, I had an interview with a friend of mine who uh, is he's a, he's a producer, he's a filmmaker, he's a, a noted speaker um, on a lot of things but particularly uh, addressing those issues of non-believers, those who are black and non-believers, in the person of Jeremiah Kamara. And I'm excited. I'm going to play uh, an interview I did with him uh, some time ago. I think it's still kind of relevant today. Some of the same issues that we discussed in this interview years ago are coming back up. And, and, and I was like, man... I, I've got to play this back. I've got I got to get back to this because uh, while people are questioning and deconstructing and all of this stuff, uh, there's there's got to be something we can do. And I'm not trying to convince people to walk away from the faith. Or if you've already done that, I'm not trying to get you back to the well. Yeah, I am kind of. That's my job to get you back in the faith. But to find you, get you in, into this place where you are. Uh, comfortable with where you are, who you are, and all that, and it's, you know, it is uncomfortable for me to discuss, because as a pastor, I want to make sure that people are sound in their faith, I don't want them losing their salvation, and I'm not getting into any doctrinal arguments about once saved, always saved, or anything like that, I'm not doing that, but right now, in this present moment, people are doing that, they're questioning, they're leaving, and they're deconstructing, and I, I just think it's, it's, it's we just at least have reached the conversation. So that's what we're going to do uh, today. I'm going back into archives and we'll pick up this uh, interview that I had with him. Now, I'm going to warn you in advance, <laughs> the quality of the audio is not as good as I would have liked. You know, I wasn't using the best kind of technology back then and the audio quality isn't good. But, uh, you know, I do hope that you can take away from this interview something that's beneficial. Uh, we were trying to have a conversation um, in trying to build bridges and trying to have a, at me as a pastor, have a better understanding. So when we come back from this break, 
that's exactly what we're going to do. Going back into the archives and reviewing and redigging and picking back up this conversation with a, a wonderful person. So don't leave. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. The last two years have been trying for all of us, and many, including myself, have sought out help from the wonderful therapists at BetterHelp. With thousands of professional therapists available, you can get quality and affordable counseling from the luxury of your home on your computer, mobile device, or tablet from someone near you. Help right at your fingertips with BetterHelp.com. Welcome back to Zero Today. Again, I'm your host, Pastor Lorenzo Neal. We're glad that you started my robbery to join us this last Wednesday of February. Quick black history fact. You're black. Not just kidding. <laughs> uh, I hope you've been observing black history. Month. I hope you do it throughout the year. But uh, it, it, it's noteworthy that you should do so. And uh, I want to take this time to recognize Mandisa Thomas, who is the founder of the Black Nonbelievers. Incorporated, and I had the opportunity to be at her fifth anniversary uh, last month. And I say this Black History because uh, it's a it's a, it's a way of helping those who have felt alienated because of what they are, how they are evolving in their faith or uh, or leaving faith, I should say. So, I wanted to recognize uh, Mandisa, and I, I say that because I had the opportunity to meet our guest at the Black Non-Believers' fifth anniversary celebration. And when I say I had the opportunity to meet him, uh, I first encountered him doing as he was moderating uh, one of the workshops, uh, author's workshop. And I tell you, it was a lot of good authors. And, uh, he was able to really, really moderate that particular segment. But he also was the keynote speaker at the, the Eden Bank. And... I, you know, I, I had opportunity in the, to interact with him, but to hear him speak, I was just like, yeah, that dude is on to something. So um, I'm glad to welcome this morning uh, or afternoon his time, Mr. Jeremiah. Are you there, sir? Yes, sir. How are you? I'm well. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining and being on the show. And um, I, I want to, again, uh, just say thank you uh, for being able to, well, I'm, I'm glad to be, have met you 
because you you know you said some stuff that a lot of people don't want to hear. Of course, you know you had your audience there who are like the amen corner, but for persons like myself who are uh, you know are standing up and trying to help empower people of color and uh, those in faith and out of faith, I I was really inspired by your words. So I just wanted to uh, tell you that to begin with. Well, thanks, thanks, uh, Brother Neil. Listen, man, uh, you are one of a kind. I'm honored to be on your show. Uh, when you call your, your, you know, yourself, you know, the humble host, man, you you hit it on the button. And uh, I want to thank you, man. I want to thank Mandisa, as you mentioned, because Mandisa is really like a catalyst. She has uh, connected me with so many people, and I'm grateful to her for that. She, of course, is the founder of the Black Nonbelievers of Atlanta. And uh, she's very instrumental. Uh, we just um, got back from Tallahassee, Florida, where we both spoke at uh, Florida State and uh, had a good time there. And uh, I've been looking forward to, to coming on your show. It was my honor and pleasure to meet you as well. Uh, again, tribute to Mandisa for inviting you. Um, when people looked at the schedule of events and saw that we were going to have a pastor on there, uh, I guess my brows raised, but I always, you know, trusted in Mandisa's judgment. And, of course, she was on point again because you added uh, to the the depth and spirit of the event uh, in positive ways. I enjoyed your talk, and uh, you have what uh, most of us uh, seem to be lacking, and that's an open mind. And, of course, um, being closed-minded is something that has, you know, been encouraged uh, throughout the, the millennium uh, because um, that's something that you just don't do. You just keep your mind closed and limit yourself to what you listen to and what you hear and just keep the faith. And I know you're a man of faith and there's nothing wrong with that, but you are open to new ideas. And I want to just give, you know, tip my hat to you. I appreciate you, and thanks for having me on the show. No problem, no problem. So let's let's get right into it. Um, and, and and I tried to give you an idea of how this was going to go, but uh, I I along with my other my guests, I mean not my guests, but my listeners, <laughs> I, I just tell us a little bit about how you got to do what you do. Well, first, you know, you are a, an author, and you are. A, a documentary filmmaker, and we'll we'll get into both of those facets of what you do. But can you give us a little background? You know, you talk about the black church as if you have experienced the black church, and yet you are you you you're now non-affiliated. I guess you could say is the best way to put it. Uh, but tell us about your background. How did you get started doing what you're doing? Uh, you know. Your, your your church background or, or all of that. How do you want to begin? It? Well, uh, I wasn't raised. Uh, I don't. I guess you would say just uh, overly religious. My parents. We did go to church. We managed to go to church quite often, but we weren't forced to go to church. It was not something that was drilled into us, and we had no fear of of not going to church. So I want to thank my mother and my father for that. Um, but I grew up in one of the largest uh, black churches in the city of Cincinnati, Ohio. It's called Tristone Baptist Church. Uh, mm-hmm. They uh, subsequently moved uh, where I was 
was was um, small. Orchard Church was, it was, I guess, small to medium size. And they moved it to, I wouldn't call it a mega church, but it was uh, quite a big church. And so uh, I got baptized at an early age. And I was seeking, I was searching like most people to find the answers and uh, to life's issues, to my own issues and seeking to understand why things were the way they were. I moved to Cleveland, Ohio. I got very interested in the church. I visited several churches. Uh, I studied uh, different uh, sects of Christianity. Uh, I was part of the Baptist faith. I was part of the Pentecostal faith. Of course, I experimented with Jehovah Witnesses, and um, I um, began to uh, deepen my understanding of religion in in terms of understanding how the Bible came about. And so these explorations sent me further and further into more exploration. And uh, these are where I made uh, various discoveries about religion, and that it's not what it what we've been told. Actually, the Bible is not something that was organic that grew off of trees. There were reasons behind everything, and so uh, even with that understanding, uh, I managed to attend uh, seminarian school. I was actually interested in becoming a minister. I was uh, 21 years old and was. You know, had the lights off on Friday to Saturday, Friday night to Saturday night, studying Herbert Armstrong and, uh, you know, the Pentecostal movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had getting rid of all of my worldly possessions, all of my jazz albums. And so I was really trying. And, um, again, as I kept exploring and looked at the historical aspect of the church, I began to ask questions. And I thought that asking questions was something that could get you in a lot of trouble in the black community. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I continued to ask questions, and then I later moved to Atlanta, Georgia, about 20 years ago, and I noticed that church was just extremely big business. And uh, if you didn't go to church here in the Bible Belt, it was almost like a death sentence. You were judged, you were criticized, and uh, in many ways you were ostracized. And so I knew that the time had come for me to write a book uh, dealing with various dynamics of the church. My first book, of course, was Holy Lockdown, Does the Church Limit Black Progress? I began to see uh, ministers repeating the same thing I had heard, you know, since I was five years old. Nothing ever changed. And so I knew that uh, it was time to at least shed some light on this and to open up some dialogue about the church. All right, so let, let's, let's, let's get into this. You know, as you as you began to explore and ask questions, uh, I, I know you, you you sense this this great in, in intensity for empowerment. It, it, you know, I, like I've been preaching almost thirty years, and I still don't mind asking questions or challenging answers to questions, but that's just me. So you write this book, Holy Lockdown, and um, you you. I tell you some things. I was like, "Man, you sure you weren't a preacher?" <laughs> but uh, <laughs> in, in the book, uh, uh, you talk about entertainment, and you talk about rhetorical confinement. Let Let's discuss those two things right there. 
regarding black preaching, um, the entertainment and rhetorical confinement. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, it's rhetoric, and we're stuck in a time zone. You know, it's just rhetorical, which comes through, which is rhetoric, uh, and so it's confined. The, the landscape of the sermon doesn't change much in the black church because the two poles are heaven and hell. So when you operate in between those two poles, you're going to have pretty much similar messages every Sunday. There's not much more that you can elaborate on. When you operate within one book and you don't bring any other books to study in church, uh, there's uh, very little that's going to change in that whole landscape. If we are honest, we will admit that uh, that um, most of what we hear in the church is stuff we've always heard. He's a doctor in the sick room. He's a lawyer in the courtroom. He may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time. Greater is he that is in me, you know, my seed begging for bread. God is good. God is great. Uh, you know, uh, it's just the same stuff over and over again. It may be said a little differently. It may be said by a more bombastic or colorful preacher, but it's essentially re- the same thing just reordered uh, in another way. And so most of us don't want to admit that, but you can take a test yourself. Ask any person who's been going to church for a number of years, ask them to name you three things that they've learned in church that they would not have learned in everyday life experience. And I've asked hundreds of people that, and I've yet to get an answer. Name three things that you've learned that you would not have learned in, in, in everyday life experience from becoming a father, becoming a mother, becoming a grandparent, raising children, uh, paying bills, owning a home, traveling, etc. These things really bring you a lot of life experience. So there's what I found, uh, Brother Neil, is that there's just not a lot of learning there, that the, the sermonic rhetoric is stuck in a, a confined period, and they just don't move from there. And I think if we're honest, most of us will admit to that. Well, yeah, you, you, you're right, and you... you... In the book, I, I notice you, <laughs> you you do address that, particularly uh, at the point of, you know, at the close of the sermon with the invitation, and you, you talk about how the organist and the preacher work hand in hand to create both a sense of spiritual, uh, spiritual ecstasy as well as guilt to make them come. <laughs> I thought that was funny, but uh, it's true. It to the I, you know, I play him, so I, I don't know. Um, right. You also talk in the book, in, in, in this book, um, talk about the black church's need for relevance, and um, I, I, the the thing that really kind of cut at me, you talk about how we still preach a, a gospel of hope and waiting, and and how that is probably the most disempowering thing that we could do. Explain that. 
Well, I mean, I think it's damaging when you tell someone to just, you know, that the Lord is going to solve all your problems. See, the church teaches us to take the path of least mental resistance. You know, if all of that worked, why are we on the bottom of education? Why are we on the bottom health-wise? Why are we on the bottom financially? No one prays more than black people. We have close to 100,000 predominantly black churches in this country, and yet we are on the bottom of every category. Uh, and so, you know, these are games. I learned in seminarian school that you preach to the itching ear. In other words, tell the people what they want to hear, not necessarily what they need to hear, but what they're familiar with, because familiarity, you know, is the anchor of the black church. It is... It is uh, the familiarity in the church that ensures uh, the membership, you know, of the church. Because once you sway outside of that sermonic landscape, uh, you lose people, and people will leave. They want to. They want a gospel, a doctrine that they're familiar with. For instance, you can go to church Sunday and say, "Oh, God is good," and people will fall out from that as if they've never heard that, you know. And so when you tell someone to just wait on the Lord, put it all in Lord's hands, uh, everything is going to be all right, it does nothing for their ability to strategically think about things, to use the frontal lobes of their brain for reasoning, for problem solving, for thinking critically. Church doesn't do that. In fact, it, 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 it reiterates what the Bible says: "Lean not into your own understanding." And we take pride in that. Let me, so let me, what let, is that? Mm-hmm. Now, why do you think a lot of preachers do not encourage um, that type of free thinking? Yeah, I'm 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 a seminarian, uh, uh, and well, I'm a, I consider myself to be an academic. I uh, I don't mind studying and questioning scientific reasoning as necessary. But why do you think preachers discourage that? Or or better yet, uh, yeah, let me see. Why do you think preachers discourage, some preachers discourage that? Well, because once you start to think outside of what you are given in church, you probably will start asking questions. If you start reading books that that deal with the you know, some of the stuff that's in that Bible, it, it will turn you off. You know, if you really start looking at the Bible critically and thinking critically, it will upset the foundation of what you've been told to believe for, for, for years. And it will also upset the foundation of your pastor's main source of income. So they don't want you to explore. You know, if you read the book, if you really really read the book, there's no way in the world you could say that that God in that book is a good God. If you tell me that that God in the Bible is good, you haven't read the book. There is so much murder, child abuse, misogyny, jealousy, pillaging, destruction, that it is hard to even fathom how someone can say that that God of the Bible is good. I mean, have you read it? Have you read the Old Testament? 
page after page after page is replete with blood, with gore. Go kill this village. Go set this village on fire. Go destroy that child. Kill all the children. Kill all the little boys. Kill all the little girls. Bring the virgins back to me. What part of this aren't we getting? What part don't we understand? And so we are afraid to ask questions because we, we think that we're going to instantaneously explode the minute that we start asking questions. That's not true. I've been free and I've been liberated for over 30 years. And I have a success story. I'm a person that barely graduated from high school. I've owned my own business now most of my life. I've been married 27 years. My wife owns her own business, and all of our children work for us. And yet not one time have we taken our children to church because we understood the mechanisms behind Christianity. And I'm not bragging because you brag on yourself on Monday and something could happen to you Tuesday. But that's okay because good, bad things happen to good people. That's life. And good things happen to bad people. But they don't want you to explore because it will really just get you to ask questions, like I said. I mean, there's so much cannibalism that's in the Bible. There's just, it's very bloody and gory. I mean, if you just look at Numbers 31 and 7, it is just the most gory display of wild, wild west, kill them, shoot them, beat them, set them on fire, maim them, cut their body parts up. It's all throughout the Bible. So as a moral person, as a righteous person, that we persons that we claim to be, why would we be so engaged in a book that's filled with so much gore and hatred and jealousy and unrighteousness? And there's never really any explanations other than the fact that they're evil, that they worship some other god. That's justification for killing all of the children and, and, and setting their villages on fire and stuff like that. So these pastors, they don't want you to know that. And it's okay to question it. They don't, they don't want you to know how the Bible came about. They want you to think that it was the inspired word of God, not that it was written by man. Not that it was created by man. Not that the very nature of Jesus was voted upon in council. Whether we should making, you know, what nature should we make Jesus? The Bible, as rough as this sounds, it is a historical fact. It is a retelling of pre-existing myths and legends. Why would a preacher want you to to, 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 to research that, to research the historical side of the Bible. There's no way that he would want you to do that, or she would want you to do that. Now, you also talk about, uh, in the book, the allegorical aspect of, a metaphorical aspect of, and the symbolical aspect of some of the things in the Bible, um, or particularly in the uh, the Old Testament, when you talk about Jonah and the whale, or uh, Moses going up to the mountaintop, uh, things of that nature. And, and you know, I, black the black preaching tradition 
emphasizes the story. We always tell the story, and you know, uh, we are guilty of by some of our more uh, uh, our more uh, European counterparts of not being solid theologically because we stick to storytelling and not proposition. Um, so I guess what I'm asking you is, would it be would it be the same if 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 uh, preachers were to help help their audience understand that some of these things can be interpreted as symbolic, as metaphorical, and allegorical? Absolutely, there's nothing wrong with allegorical messages, but unfortunately, we don't teach it allegorically. We teach it literally. We think that there was literally a burning bush. We think that the 31 cities that Joshua allegedly conquered actually existed, and they didn't. There's not one shred of evidence. We think that the Jews that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years actually happened. We think that the water was actually parted where the Israelites walked through and left the Egyptians behind. See, and so it's not taught metaphorically. I mean, you can learn from fables. Look at Aesop's fables. There are many lessons to be learned in that. You know, the fox and the grapes is actually where we got our whole concept of, um, of uh, uh, um, uh, what is it, when you have uh, cognitive dissonance. Yes. You know, so, so, so you can learn from those things, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think we should, you know, study the Bible from not a literal standpoint, but from history, a historical standpoint of how it all came together. What were the me- the mechanisms behind the creating of it? But yeah, it's it's a it's a good thing. I mean, you know, if you take this stuff literally, when do you pick and choose which ones not to take literally, and which ones to take metaphorically? Do you take Elijah? You know, because the children were teasing his bald head and he ordered a bunch of bears to come down from the mountain and literally eat the children and, <laughs> yeah, you know, so sever their body parts. What? How do you take that? They were, bully, what? they were yeah. bullying the prophet and you're not supposed to touch not the, 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 the anointed. I think something like that. Touch not the prophet. Anointed do the prophet no harm. Right. <laughs> right. They were, they were teasing him. So what part of that? I mean, I mean, you know, here it is, all of the behavior that we see in people that we criticize, you know, like Bill Cosby, like uh, Charlie Sheen, like oh, whoever else committed, you know, acts of, of, of hell, OJ, whoever, that people that we denounce. But then you look at King David. Who do you know in... Fiction or reality was a bigger whore and a worse character than David. What didn't he do? Having sex with multiple women, sending his best friend to war so he could have sex with his wife, impregnate her, get mad at his son and have sex with his wife's son in public, I mean, and it goes on and on and on. And so the, these church, these preachers get up there and actually preach David. Why don't you preach OJ? 
Why don't you get up there and preach Bill Cosby, the same people who you are looking down upon? There is no character that I've ever seen, historical or fictional, that was a worse character than David. You know, so it's just, I don't think, I don't think, uh, Brother Neil, I don't think we read it. I don't. Um, I read the Bible. I read the Old Testament from the first page of Genesis to the end, I think, of Malachi. I think that's the last book. And there were only like six, seven, or eight pages that didn't allude to some type of blood, that didn't mention the word kill or destroy, smite, smoke, wicked, devil, you know, fire, tillage. Only six to eight in the whole chapters, in the whole, you know, uh, books of the Old Testament. And the only time that it paused from death and destruction of something or someone was when they were describing the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, how this Ark of the Covenant is, should be built, the wood that should be used, the, the, uh, the, the, the tabernacle, what kind of you know, curtains should be used and what color it should be. And then as soon as it ended with that, it went right back to, you know, the blood and the gore. And people will say, well, that's the Old Testament. But wait a minute. It was the Old Testament that gave you your commandments that you uphold. It's the Old Testament that gives you the story of creation, which is very, you know, kindergartenish and, and very fallacious to think that the earth got here in six days or seven <laughs> days or however, you know, weeks, whatever, two weeks or three weeks. That's very childish. But instead of exercising the power of our minds, we would rather stay in prison psychologically, continue to be bound, which is what religion means, to be tied up, to, to retie, to rebind, to relig, like a ligament. I have a ligament now or a tendon in my shoulder probably that needs to be retied, relig, remended. It's the same thing. To tie up, to bind you up. It is, in many ways, the opposite of freedom. And we erroneously think that the Bible is responsible for our moral behavior. When you have, you know, when you have uh, deer out here and dogs and, you know, buffalo and wildebeest and other social animals and dolphins and things like that, that have a moral code about them. They don't go around destroying each other, clubbing each other in the head. We learned early on as human beings that to club each other in the head, you couldn't do that if you wanted to build family units. I mean, a two-year-old shares their toys. They learn from an early on, whether they go to church or read the Bible or not, that it's not good to do something. That's something, that's a human thing. So religion has no monopoly on being human or being moral. In fact, you cannot pull from this book and find very much morality in the first place. So I think, Brother Neil, we're just afraid. That's all. Yeah, you, you, you know, you, you did mention just a few moments ago that for many believers, they draw their sense of morality 
from from the Bible, and I have to I have to agree with you. You know that that's probably not the best place to draw uh, your your sense of morality from, uh, even from the commandment. And I know this is not what a lot of people, you know, want want preachers like me to say. But the reality is, you know, when you look from scripture, particularly from those who we claim authored a lot of it, you find moral uh, a deep immoral sense of uh, person. And, you know, it's, it's just amazing how we do that. But anyway, I digress. Let, let, let's move on to your, uh, I'm going to take a quick break. And then we're going to come back from the break. We'll talk about your, um, your documentary. Uh, and I, I think you made more than one, but I want to talk about the one that I, I have watched, uh, Contradiction. And hopefully we can even talk about the new book, The New Doubting Thomas, uh, if we have time. But we're going to take a quick break. And I'm going to make it a short one and we get back on that. Is that right? That's fine. Thank you. All right. Be right back. There's nothing as soothing as having a sweet aroma penetrate all of your senses. Peacock, the newest candle fragrance by Heatcentric, is that aroma. Peacock is a vegan hand-poured candle that fills the room with a soothing aroma that everyone is guaranteed to enjoy. Peacock by Heatcentric is the fragrance developed by Lady Jocelyn Sanders that's designed to reflect the glory in everyday life. I guarantee you will not disappoint it when you order your candle today from Heatcentric. I have one at home and in my office, and I tell you, it's so good. It helps me relax at home, and it helps me concentrate and stay on task in the office. You need to order yours today by visiting LadySanders.com, and while they also pick up a copy of her book, The Encounter, I'm telling you, you will love both. Peacock by Heatcentric, reflecting the glory in everyday life.
All right, welcome back again to Zero Today. You're joined with Pastor Lorenzo Neal, and I'm joined by Jeremiah Kamara, author, uh, documentary filmmaker, and just a great person. I tell you, I'm glad to, and honored to have him on the show this morning. And if you missed the first uh, segment, of course, you know, you missed a lot, so you're going to have to catch the archive show to get the bulk of that. And we, he, he went into a lot of detail. So we talked about his book, Holy Lockdown. And now we're going to talk about his documentary that he made. It's called Contradiction. And uh, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you came about, how this project came about, and uh, what is the intent of it. Well, sure. The intent is nothing that you would, you know, expect. Really, it's it's. I, I don't have really lofty goals, and I know that may sound strange, but the main thing is to just get you to to think and to get us to see things from a different perspective. That's it. Once you start seeing things from a different perspective. You know, you'll take it from there. Let me just, before I get into it, let me give an example. They say that when you change your perspective, the perspective changes. For instance, if you're a musician, you know, I play a little piano, right? Once I I changed my perspective on the keys and started thinking linear as opposed to horizontally, and started thinking in terms of numbers, my playing got better, as, as opposed to notes, think in terms of numbers. Mm-hmm. It's just a shift in perspective. You can pretty much take it from there. Once you change your perspective on things, then you can take it from there. You can grow and start to do your own research. But you first have to do that, and that was really my only goal. I wanted to make the film... Uh, Brother Neil, as where it wasn't um, being condemnatory toward anyone's beliefs. And I know that people may be listening to me now and think that I have the biggest horns on earth. And that's something I have to live with. But I have enough love in my heart to want to shed the truth and to offer truth to people for those who may be trapped and they want some liberation. Contradiction is basically about the saturation of churches in black neighborhoods coexisting in the midst of poverty and and, and, uh, powerlessness. Why are there so many churches yet so many problems? And is there a connection between high praise and low productivity? Mm. If the Spirit of God allegedly dwells in all of these churches. And there's a church on every corner, seemingly, in the black neighborhood, and we all can bear witness to that. I can't tell you how many churches I passed by going, driving from Atlanta to Tallahassee. The number, I couldn't even count. When we got up on the back road of, I think it was Route 319, I couldn't, it's just too many to count. And once we got in Tallahassee, the Deep South, and here in Atlanta, you can stand in one area of the city and see seven churches. I can stand literally in one spot on the southwest side of Atlanta and see seven black churches. 
And so if the Spirit of God allegedly dwells in these holy places, why are the surrounding areas laden with so many problems? And this was my question. This is what I sought to find out. And so we have a problem. If the church is the head, we look very peculiar because the head is not connected to the body. If you were to see a person walking down the street without a head, they would look very peculiar. And we, I mean, the crime, the, the murders against one another that we commit, the lack of commitment to higher learning that we display, the financial disunity that we display, the uh, division within our community, the divisiveness. You know, you talked earlier about Kanye West and and, 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 um, Kirk Franklin collaborating and all the Christians are upset. Look at that divisiveness, man. Just on something that simple. But yet there are churches everywhere. What are you doing in the churches? What are you learning? And, of course, everyone will say this, Lorenzo. They'll say, oh, well, my church is different. My past, I mean, you all will say that because no one wants to really admit that their church is fundamentally speaking anyway, no different than any other church. True. You know, and every week, we the church is draining the black community. We are sucking out $250 million on average a week from the black community. And you don't have a supermarket of any significance, a bank of any real significance, a hotel or a motel of any real significance, a gas station, but yet you're upset because your pastor is not driving the proper car. You're upset because your pastor doesn't have the proper plane. Or your pastor doesn't have the top, is not wearing the proper attire. This is nothing short of insanity. And we have to keep this in mind. People who are brainwashed, people who are suffering from psychosis, and people who are suffering from delusion do not realize they are. That's why they're suffering from these things. Okay. You, you, uh, you brought up can I, you, you brought up so much right there, and I, I really want to unpack all of that before you go on because you you talk about I know you're in Atlanta, and Atlanta is <laughs> it's a mega city for mega churches. You know there are at least there are dozens of mega churches just in that area uh, in 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 Atlanta. I'm I'm you know in the metro Atlanta area, and I've I've been to several of them. Um, when you when you talk about the psychosis of these of, of of churches, the saturation of churches, do you put it from the perspective of the need? Uh, because in, in my in my experience, most 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 preachers who start their own churches, I I I I have served as a church planner at one time. Um, currently, you know, I, I don't do that. But most who start their own churches always say that uh, 
God called them to do so and that they see the need. So are you arguing that instead of starting a church, they should start something that is uh, for profit? God called me to do so. That is a claim. Anybody can say that. You know, if I want a quick come up, all I got to do is say God called me. Who was there to hear it but you? So these are just claims. You know, I think that I can't remember exactly. But I think it was 71% of, of, of black churches, uh, of, of black pastors come from uh, fathers or grandfathers who were pastors. It's mighty funny that God, God keeps calling people from the same address. <laughs> Uh, let, from the let, same let, home, let, you let, go let into it because you go into it because it is a lucrative business. Hey, hey, you my see? dad, my dad is a pastor too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that's just the reality of it. Like you grow up in that, and so you know that you're no stranger to it. So now you get on the deacon board, and now you become. I mean, this is this is how it is. You're a pastor yeah. because someone in your family was a pastor, so you're accustomed to that. This is all you know. You have never ventured beyond this experience of this, this, you know, this uh, church paradigm, you know. And so saying that God called you is just a claim. You know, here it is. We, when we were filming the documentary, we went on the west side of Chicago. Now, I've been all over the country. I've been to, you know, every major city throughout the United States. And there was nothing like the experience of Chicago, which is probably having the worst experience in in murder, black-on-black murder. And it is ironic that they had the most churches. Now, of course, I didn't count all the churches, but I'm just talking about from an eyewitness it was amazing what you saw on the west side of Chicago. There were churches everywhere, next door, across the street, adjacent, behind, two doors down, three doors down. And, I mean, there were, like, on three streets just within, you know, a three-mile or less radius, there were hundreds of churches. And it was an impoverished area. So... You mean to tell me that God, what a waste of time to call you and then call you and then call you and then call you, and then the neighborhood is going to hell. These are just claims that I was called by God. I could I could stop right now and make a fortune. Man, with, with my knowledge of the Bible, my knowledge of religion, I could say, well, you know what? Man, I had that talk with uh, Pastor Lorenzo Neal, and then I had a change of heart. God called me to preach. Oh, I got a story to tell. I was once a non-believer, and now I got, I, I, you know, God called me. I, you know, people would really come. They may not yeah. now because they know that, that, that I'm hip to the game. They'll but as long come. as you know how to play the game. They'll, they'll probably still come. Yeah, they probably will. But as long as you know how to play the game, you're going to have an audience. And you saw the game, you know, the six preacher techniques, which we'll talk about later. But it's yeah. just amazing. It's amazing. You you had Doctor uh, you had uh, Doctor MLK son uh, uh, the third Martin Luther King the third 
on your show, and I was I was watching some of his uh, responses. I listened to some of his responses, and he found it difficult to articulate the question as to why there are so many black churches. Uh, I, I and you know I I didn't expect him to be able to you know be an authority on, but what did what were some of the answers that you you got when you posed that questions to other persons? I, the same response. I heard crickets because it's inexplicable. No, with all respect to Martin Luther King III, he too is in a, is, is stuck in a state of rhetorical confinement. Whenever you hear him speak, you don't know whether it's 2016 or whether it's 1960. He's still going around talking about we need to be nonviolent. I mean, he hasn't moved one bit above and beyond what his father talked about. There's no originality in what he's saying at all. Or his sister. So uh, they don't know. They haven't thought deeply about it. People have not thought deeply about it. Because we are waiting on the there and then instead of the here and now. You know, we are cheating the life that we have now by concentrating and focusing on where we're going to go when we die. What a waste of life. What a waste of valuable time. Time Hmm. is greater than money because you can die with a pocket, a bank full of money, but your time is up. We should be spending time living life, not staying in a cocoon, afraid of doing things because we're going to go to hell. That's the ultimate form of terrorism, not based on what you did, but based off of what you believe, what you think. That, uh, as you saw Graydon Square eloquently uh, say in 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 the movie, that is the ultimate form of slavery. That is the ultimate form. So we're suffering from psychosis, and it's not just black people. The patterns and thoughts and the behavior that you saw in the film are not exclusive to black people at all. We may be disproportionately affected because we were have a, 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 his, a history with a shotgun wedding uh, with religion. We were bullied into believing. You know, there are not many people who have a choice, especially if we're preachers' kids. We don't have a choice. We are bullied into believing. But at the end of the day, churchgoers are no better off than anybody else. You have the same bills, the same problems, the same pain, the same family dysfunction, the same struggles as anyone else. It's all in your head because you're suffering from psychosis to think that you're different because you're a believer, that you're blessed. You're blessed and you're living this paycheck-to-paycheck type of life. You're blessed and you're in poor health. I'll pray for you, but your health is bad. I'll pray for you, sir, but your finances are bad. And that's what psychosis is. Psychosis is the loss of all sense of reality. And that is what the Bible and the church and religion has done. 
It has made us lose our sense of reality. We are operating in the make-believe. Well, Jeremiah, you don't believe in God. You would never ask me, do I believe in my phone that I'm talking on right now? Just by the way you pose the question tells me that you don't either. Because you wouldn't ask someone if they believed in something that was obviously there, that is, that, you know, is obviously before them. So just by the nature of the question infers a sense of doubt on your behalf too. But you're bullied into believing everything that you've been taught from a child. And it's getting us nowhere. Okay. I, that, that was a lot right there too. And, and uh, I don't think we have enough time to really unpack that. But let, let's move on to uh, what you get into in, 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 in the documentary. Um, you talk about the six types of, of, of messages of preachers. And I tell you, that was funny. That, that was funny because I, I found myself in a, a little bit all of them. But uh, when you, when you, it goes back to what you stated in the book, too, about, you know, the the rhetoric confinement, rhetorical confinement, and um, how, how sometimes these preachers capitalize on the vulnerability of parishioners. Uh, so, so uh, go into that, if you don't mind. Sure. This is not something that I learned in seminarian school, although I did learn a lot of tricks if I was to come, become a pastor on the tricks to apply to the congregation to keep them absorbed, uh, to keep them, you know, docile, uh, to keep the money flowing. So this is through observations of years of studying the church. There are six basic preacher's techniques. You have the hooker, the storm chaser, the assigner, the messenger, the hope killer, and the terrorist. Now the hooker, just to break it down briefly, they're the ones who keep repeating the same thing. Almost like in a record, like the hook in a record, the chorus. You know, and I gave an example uh, on one, I'm in a faith fight. And you, you go on, you preach a little bit. I'm in a faith fight. And you preach a little bit about that. I'm in a faith fight. You know, you keep the premise of your, of your, uh, the theme, I should say, of your sermon. It's like a hook. Then you got the signers turn to your neighbor. They give you assignments <laughs> to do. Look at your neighbor yeah. and say this. That takes a boring sermon and kind of spices it up to give the, get the congregation to do what you instantly tell them to do. It's almost like Simon said. Then you have the hope dealer that continuously tells you, oh, don't worry about your bills. God's going to make a way for you. Uh, you tomorrow, your blessings are coming. You know, this is when you hear T.D. Jakes, all of them. They always tell you that to keep you coming back. It's almost like dope, but, but this, in this case, it's hope. Then you have the messenger, the one that claimed to have a message from God. Well, God told me to tell you this. God told me, and God came to me and told me to tell you this. Okay, then you have the uh, storm chaser. 
which is my favorite, which is the most effective one. The storm chaser puts you in the cloud, tells you what you don't have. You can't pay your bills, your suffering, your family. And that gives the preacher the opportunity to rescue you in the end, almost like the sun peeking through the clouds. So you have to beat them down in order to lift them up first. Because if you go in there like, there's nothing wrong with me, I'm okay, you're not going to be as affected by that sermon. And then lastly, you have the terrorists. These are the, 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 the pastors like Creflo Dollar who will try to scare you and terrorize you uh, for not tithing, telling you that if you don't tithe, you're going to hell, telling you that tithing is your covenant connector, uh, threatening you with eternal damnation if you don't get right, if you don't ever join the church. Do you want to go to hell? I mean, this is terrible what we're doing to the minds of our people. We are keeping them enslaved. We have no right to have a, uh, a beef with slavery when every Sunday you go and get an aspect of slavery instilled in you. Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday, Bible study, or whenever else you have it. It is terrible, and no wonder you got a people that's walking around peculiar of having a body without a head. Uh, Peter, there you go picking on us preachers again. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, though, man. I love you. Let me tell you something, uh, Pastor Neil. I'm not, my job here is not to, you, you invited me on this show, and I love you for it. And let me tell you something. <laughs> I want to collaborate as much as possible. I don't want to. You're not my enemy. You are my brother. And you, unlike most pastors, are not suffering from CDD, which is a courage deficit disorder. Now, if you really, you know, uh, uh, trust in a higher power, then you would have no problem with hearing perspectives from other people. So my hat is off. I commend you. Uh, yeah, I, I'm crazy. I actually showed you your documentary during the Bibles as our as one of our Bible studies this month. We've been we've been uh, watching films, and this was one. And uh, yeah, I'm crazy like that. I don't, you know, I, I I don't know any better. But uh, I, what I appreciated about the documentary from a pastor's perspective is the fact that I, you had those two young brothers there and. Uh, you know, they were well-dressed and were able to articulate some things. But from a pastor's perspective, the, 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 you had an elderly lady who was a pastor. And I, I think she was in Chicago. Was she in Chicago? I think that was D.C. with the red, with the pink dress on. Yeah, yeah. And That was like, uh, that was D.C. Okay, that was D.C. And in the midst of her suffering, she was still carrying out, you know, outreach and feeding and things of that nature. And she said... Oh, no, that was, that was New York. No, that was New York. If you're talking about that, yeah, right. New York. All right. Uh, but I, 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 was, I, I was moved by the fact that she said she loved her people. And I, I wish there were more pastors that had that kind of heart. And, you know, it's the little storefront churches sometimes that, that, that do things like that. But, you know... Uh, I wish the mega pastors had that kind of heart uh, to, 
with the, some of the clips that you show, you know, you can see the hundreds or thousands of people in the crowd and they're being excited, excited by the words, but they're not being excited to action. You know, they're not being actualized to actually go out and do something except brag about, and, and this is very general, general, brag about the church, brag about the pastor, brag about what their church does that they don't do, but they know that their church does something. Um, so let's, 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 I'm, I only have a few more minutes. Let's quickly get into the, this last book and this last, uh, 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 the, the New Doubting Common. And this one really, I skimmed through this. This one really is perhaps more direct toward those who are wrestling with the idea of uh, firing God in the words of Cheryl Abram. Hey, Cheryl. Uh, or letting go of their religion, coming out of the closet as non-believers. And I really want you to touch on that because, I, you know, I, I've shared this before, and I, I shared it at the uh, non-believers uh, workshop. Until we really, as pastors, get to the point where we acknowledge that we're failing in what we're supposed to be doing because we're, we're, we're succeeding by some folks' standards, but we're really failing in what we're supposed to be doing. So in this book, you really address the, the the reality of folk leaving the church. So tell us about this and uh, the impact it's having uh, not just on the church but on the black community. Well, you know, there there the new doubting Thomas is just it explores the African American dynamic with with Christian with the faith and its effect on the culture. And it talks about myths and the doctrines of the side effects of blindly believing in entails without questioning it. And there are many people today, I'm telling you, the millenniums are over 40, 40, 40, 45%, somewhere around there, millennials are, are not affiliated because right now the social Meet with social media, information is at your fingertips. It is easier than ever to debunk the historicity of Jesus. There is no, not a shred of evidence now in the age of, of information. We know that. And this current age reveals new generations of individuals who are refusing to allow their logic and natural curiosities to be held between the pages of Genesis and Revelation. And blind, unquestioning uh, belief is no longer dictated by fear in many respects. Biblical dogma is coming into question all over the world. Lorenzo, I've been to many parts of the world. And where you find the most religion, you find the most impoverishment. Where you find the most belief and the most commitment to faith, you find the most uh, despondency. Where you find the least religion, the least amount of church goers, you find the best health care system. You find the best educational system. You find the best economic systems. 
There are no exceptions anywhere in the world. So you got to realize that this was, you know, at some point we, we have to realize that this was a game that was put down. Christianity owes this membership to the political process, period. It appealed to the Roman government, uh, not as a religion that would bring about, you know, spirituality or enlightenment, okay, but would bring about uniformity and control, which is what it's always been about. So, it, I mean, there the Vatican has gained untold amounts of money. It is the richest organization on the planet. And it came by way of the Inquisitions and the Crusades of seizing people's lands and making people pay for the remissions of sins, which is what Creflo Dollar does to this day. Makes you pay for the remissions of your sins, so to speak. It is a terrible game that continues to be played here in the 21st century. I'm not a recruiter. Trust me. I don't go around knocking on people's doors on Saturdays to recruit them. My job is to offer you a different perspective, common sense, that will at least get you to look into what it is you are doing. If you call yourself a Baptist, you ought to be able to tell me where the Baptist religion started. If you're a Pentecostal, call yourself a Pentecostal. You know, I did a survey, Pastor Neil, and I asked about 100 or, or more people at a T.D. Jakes conference uh, that he had here in Atlanta. I said, are you a Baptist, Pentecostal, Protestant, Methodist, or none of the above? And I had all different types of answers. Nobody realized that all of that is Protestant. See, we don't even know what we're into. We have <laughs> denomination without investigation. Exactly, yeah. So we're, so we're just blind. We don't know. We have no clue of what we're into. And it's time that it stops. Now, I want to ask you a question. You could name many, uh, uh, propose something. I'm going to propose something to you here. If you go look in the Bible, all of the people that God allegedly called to go do his work, to go and preach and to go and conquer, what did they all have in common? They all were working. They were working in the field when they were called. They were Noah was doing this when they were called. David was playing uh-huh. strumming his harp, working. Right. They were all they all had jobs. Obadiah they had jobs. Now, when you make this your full time job to go and pet people, you're wrong. Go get a skill in a trade, like everybody else. I agree. Don't take the money from our people and then go get you some gators, you know, and, 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 and live high on the hall and your parishioners are suffering. No, go get a job like everybody else. I, you know, I, I say that all the time, you know, if we're going to be in ministry, we need to be in ministry to serve and not to be served. Uh, and until we get that, we're going to continue to miss the mark. Look, we're running out of time. Uh, only got about 
little of a minute left. So uh, tell everyone how they can get in touch with you if they're curious about your products or curious about your speaking engagements. Uh, do a quick promo, and um, we're going to have to get on out of here. Sure. Uh, you can reach me very simply at jeremiahkamara.com. That's where you'll find the books, Holy Lockdown, the movie the documentary Contradiction, The Question of Faith, the other book, The New Doubting Thomas, The Bible, The Folks and Blind Belief, J-E-R-E-M-I-A-H-C-A-M-A-R-A, jeremiahkamara.com. Man, it's been a pleasure. Pastor Neil, I want to thank you. I don't want to uh, make this to be our last uh Discussion. Oh no, because we—I didn't even get into the the, uh, the slave sermon, so you know we got to play catch up. Oh yeah, that's that, that's another <laughs> thing too. You can also—I have forty-six episodes of slave sermons. They're yeah. all little ten minutes or less snippets of video illustrations, which uh, illustrate uh, the perils of religious intoxication, specifically as it pertains to African Americans. But it's it's all groups though, and you can find all that right. too by visiting JeremiahKamara.com. All right, we're about to go off the air, and uh, it's been Pastor Neil and JeremiahKamara.com. Uh, uh, well, that's his site. But uh, if you missed this, you can catch the archive show, visit uh, Zero Today uh, Network on Facebook. You can catch it there, or uh, go to blogtalkradio.com slash Zero Today and catch up. But we got to get out of here. Thank you, man. I appreciate you for being on the show, and I, I'm grateful, and uh, we'll, we'll be getting back together soon. Thank you, brother, and it's my pleasure, man. All right, to everyone in, uh, everyone, thank you for tuning in. This is Pastor Lorenzo Neal, and I'm out of here. Take care. Have a great one.